Hey everybody and welcome to Breaking Biotech. Thanks for being with me here today. My name is Matt and if you like the show you can help out by clicking the like or subscribe button. You can also donate using the Patreon link in the description below. So I'm glad to be back and I've got a great show for everybody today. We're going to be talking about updates that we've seen in the ophthalmology sector and I'm specifically referring to updates we've seen from Regenix Bio and ClearSide in reference to the suprachoroidal delivery of RGX314. And I'm also talking about an update we've seen from 4D Molecular Therapeutics with their treatment in X-linked retinitis pigmentosa. So we're going to talk about all of that. And yeah, I'm excited to do it. So thank you so much for all the support. Appreciate all the engagement I've been getting. Hit that like, subscribe button. And if somebody else could appreciate this kind of content in your life, feel free to share it. And that would be great. So to start off, I want to talk about Regenix Bio and ClearSide. And... These companies recently provided updates from the suprachoroidal injection of this gene therapy called RGX314. And the purpose of this therapy is to try to introduce the expression of an anti-VEGF therapy in the eye. And the benefit of using this suprachoroidal injection method is to try to overcome the need to do a subretinal injection, which has a lot of problems associated with it technically. So this is the first data that we've seen from Regenix Bio and ClearSide where they've given this RGX314 suprachoroidally and we're now able to assess the efficacy and the safety and it's very exciting to see uh, what we're getting so far. So the first study that they showed us data in was in wet AMD and this is the phase two aviate trial. And what they looked at here is in 15 different patients and they tell us that no prophylactic steroids have been given and so the reason why safety is so important here, one is that the suprachoroidal space injector is supposed to overcome a lot of the safety issues that are associated with subretinal. So we wanna make sure that the safety actually is in check here. The other thing about safety more broadly that we care about is that because there are existing treatments on the market right now for wet AMD, Lucentis, Ilea, the bar is set pretty high to do at least as well as those therapies for safety. Now you would think that giving fewer injections using a gene therapy, that's also the point of this here, would overcome some of those safety problems, but we still wanna make sure that we're doing better or at least the same as what we're seeing with ILEA or Lucentis. And an example of why this is so important is that the FDA has denied Therapies trying to come on the market to reduce the number of injections. And the one that I'm referring to is Abisipar Pegol. And the FDA actually denied this drug's approval because of the safety. And the safety was 15.4% rate of intraocular inflammation. So if we can't do better than 15.4%, I think it's going to be a bit of a struggle to get new therapies approved. So this is why it's so important for us to look at the safety and assess whether or not it hits a threshold around that. So going back to the Regenix Bio SCS update here, here's what the company tells us. Treatment emergent adverse events in the study eye were generally mild and none were severe. And then they go through and they list the actual things that came out. So five out of 15 patients had conjunctival hemorrhage, four out of 15 had intraocular pressure increases, three out of 15 had worsening of neovascular AMD, 2 to 15 had conjunctival hyperemia, and then 2 to 15 had dry eye. Now, among all of these, I have colored in red the ones that I'm most concerned about. 
4 to 15 had intraocular pressure increases. And they say here that three of them had anterior cell and one of them had vitreous cell. And this refers to the location of the eye on where these pressure increases are happening. They mentioned that all cases resolved within days to weeks on topical corticosteroids, which have been discontinued. So the silver lining here is that the cases resolve. So this is transient intraocular pressure changes, which is a good thing. Um, however, it is happening in four out of 15 patients in this study. So that's a, a bit on the high side for me. And the other one that I have highlighted here is conjunctival hyperemia, which is an inflammation condition in the eye. And we're seeing this in two out of 15 patients. Now, it's a small study, but if we go back to what I mentioned with the FDA's denial of abacipar pegol, that was 15.4% rate of intraocular inflammation. So we want to make sure that we're as low as possible in these. And 2 to 15, it's not the worst, but hopefully we can improve this as we get to a larger patient population. Now, another thing that I didn't really mark as red because the company is trying to eschew this away by saying that it was all reported from one investigator at one site, but 3 out of 15 patients had worsening of neovascular AMD, which is a concern, but we didn't really hear too much of it on the call, so I don't know really what to make of it, but if 20% of the patients are getting worsening in their disease, that's going to be a problem for this treatment. So I'm hoping that as the company moves into the higher dose cohorts, we're going to see some kind of resolution in at least the worsening of NAMD, and then hopefully as we increase that patient population, the safety is going to come out a little bit better. But to me here, the safety is a bit mixed. I don't think it's necessarily dead on arrival because of the reasons that I just outlined, but it is something that I'm a little hesitant about. The company also mentions that there's no chorioretinal vasculitis or occlusion or hypotony. So that's a good thing. Now, moving on to the efficacy. And this is the reason why I sold my position from the outset, just based off of the headline news. And what we saw here is that in the ranibizumab group, there was an increase in 6.8 letters from day one compared to the RGX314 treatment, which had a decrease of 2.8 letters. Now, this is technically true, but if we look at the data on a time course here, we can see that there's a bit of an artifact going on here. So the way the treatment regimen goes is that on day one, everyone is given a ranibizumab injection. They wait one week evaluate the BCVA again. Then they randomize patients into either the ranibizumab group or the RGX314 group. And then after another week, patients will get the RGX314 treatment. So the big changes that we've seen in BCVA here are mostly due to this day one to week two period and not between the week two and month six period. And that's clearly seen here so if we actually look at the changes in BCVA from week one, and I'm showing that here in the graph, the difference is plus three letters for ranibizumab compared to negative 0.6 letters for RGX314. And this is statistically insignificant, these changes. So for me, I think the efficacy, while it looks like a bad top line result, it's not really a big deal. And the two treatments in my estimation are no different from each other. The big difference though is that 
There's 1.2 injections being given over the six-month period compared to seven injections being given in the ranibizumab group. When it comes to central retinal thickness, there is a larger effect seen in the ranibizumab group, but I don't think it's statistically significantly different compared to the RGX314 group. So to me, this isn't a big deal. We do see that the RGX314 group tends to increase as we get to month five, but in that month six time point, it is very much in line with the ranibizumab group. And it's not really that much different from the week two period. Again, most of the differences that are seen here are due to that the difference between day one and week two, which in my estimation isn't a great evaluation of RGX314. It has more to do with week two to month six when the RGX314 is actually injected. Now, the most impactful graph, I think, from this study is the one that I'm showing here, and this is the change in the annualized injection rate. So before I talk about that, though, I did want to mention on why I think there was such a difference in the BCVA in that day one to week two time period. And you can see here that all of these patients are on all sorts of different uh, treatment regimen prior to RGX314. They're, they're not necessarily on ranibizumab, they might be on another type of anti-VEGF treatment, and the frequency of their injections before getting this day one treatment is all over the place. So we see here in patient one, they had just received a different type of treatment, and it seems like it may be within like two weeks before that day one injection. And then if we look at patient 15 down here, they had received four ranibizumab injections over the prior year, and there may have been a gap here of like three, four months before they received that day one injection. So given the diversity of the pre-ranibizumab injection treatment regimen, it stands to uh, explain what's going on in that early part of the BCVA changes. And it's for those reasons that I feel pretty confident in the efficacy here. And it does play out when we look at the annualized injection rate difference here. The change in annualized injection rate is negative 75.9%. And if we compare that to the efficacy of RGX314 given subretinally, at one year, the difference is 85% in the reduction of annualized injections. And at two years, it's 79%. So on the efficacy side, I think RGX314 given uh, supercroidally with this injector absolutely hits the mark on efficacy. When it comes to safety though, that's the one thing that I'm a little bit concerned about and I'm hoping that as we get more data updates and more patients, this will flush out. Moving right along, I wanna start talking about the next data update that we heard from Regenix Bio and this is the phase two altitude study and this was using RGX314 in the supracroidal space injector in patients that have diabetic retinopathy, which is a very large patient population. So very excited to see how this plays out. And so the primary endpoint here, they were looking at the proportion of patients that had an equal or greater than two-step improvement in the severity on the diabetic retinopathy severity scale, DRSS, at 48 weeks. That's the primary endpoint, and this is a 12-week update only. So to start, let's talk about the safety. And again, for reasons that I outlined before, safety is critical here. And so they mentioned that no prophylactic steroids were given. So what we can see in the safety is actually something worth talking about. And I'll, I'll get to that when we talked about the 40 molecular therapies uh, safety regimen 
or prophylactic steroid regimen. And what we see here is a much more mild phenotype coming out when it comes to safety compared to the wet AMD patients. What they say is that common treatment emergent adverse events in the study eye were not considered drug related and were mostly mild. They call out one mild episcleritis case, one out of 15 patients, so 7%, and they say that this was resolved with topical steroids. They also saw some conjunctival hyperemia, this was two out of 15 patients, or 13%, and then there was some conjunctival hemorrhage, two out of 15 patients, or 13%. So this safety is a lot better than the wet AMD safety, and this has me more excited when it comes to seeing a treatment actually being able to be approved here. They mentioned that there was no intraocular inflammation observed, and it seems like there's no real change in intraocular pressure that's seen, um, even though they don't say specifically that no intraocular pressure signals were seen. So I'm curious to know why the company calls out what they didn't see when really I just want them to tell us what they did see. So that was a little bit weird. Um, but overall, I think the safety here is great. The one mild episcleritis, it resolved with topical steroids, so I don't think it's something we need to be too concerned about. Um, but overall here, I think for diabetic retinopathy, we're looking much better from a safety perspective. When it comes to the actual efficacy here, the like I mentioned, the primary endpoint was an improvement greater or equal than two steps in this DRSS scale. What we see here in the observational control, and keep in mind the control patients are on the more severe side, and they've broken them up into mild, uh, medium, and severe patients based on the DRSS scale. So five patients in the severe category, none of them had an equal of two or greater step improvement in DRSS. When it comes to the 15 patients on RGX314 at three months, we saw that 33% of them had an improvement in two, as far as two steps or above. So big, big difference here between the control and the treatment. And if we break this down into the different severity level and then compare it to other treatments, ILEA is one of them, and then we also have the uh, ranibizumab study that was done before. So the company made this very easy for us to assess. And what we see here in a similar severity level, which would be the uh, DRSS between 47 and 65, we get an efficacy here of 43% in the altitude study so far. And this compares very nicely to the ILEA study that showed a 40% to 45% improvement. And this looks quite a bit better compared to ranibizumab, which saw an efficacy of 31 to 35%. So RGX314 is actually looking quite a bit better than the existing therapies, and the safety is pretty solid. So I'm very excited to see these results from the altitude study. I think it's very encouraging, especially because this is only cohort one. In the severity group here, and I wanted to call this out because, like I mentioned, the observational control group was the most severe patients. So in the most severe patients, we saw a 0% improvement in two or great, in patients that saw a two-step or greater um, improvement. If we look at only the severe patients here, we still see an efficacy in the RGX314 group of 25% of patients. So to me, this is very encouraging and I'm excited to see how the next cohorts look. So in the next things that we can expect from Regenix Bio, 
the Q3 earnings report is probably going to be coming out in the next month or so, so we should get a truncated update on all of their programs. But they also mentioned that the supercroidal space injector of RGX314 in wet AMD, we're going to see interim data of cohort 2 in Q4 of this year. So we're not done with the supercroidal space injector updates yet, and I'll be looking forward to that. Regenix Bio also says that they're going to give us a program update from RGX181 as well as RGX381. So the company has a lot going on right now, and it's for these reasons that I took advantage of the dip that we saw after the October 1st data readout. So I sold right on that October date uh, a decent portion, maybe three quarters of my position. And then before the diabetic retinopathy data, I added my position since the stock got hammered so hard. Now, when it comes to ClearSide, they have some other stuff going on. They have a PDUFA date coming on October 30th of 2021, and this is a Class 2 resubmission. So if you know about resubmissions, there's Class 1 and Class 2. Class 1 is usually less significant because the FDA can make a decision on the resubmission within only two months. Class 2, though, is a bigger deal. They're requesting more information. This is for allowing a six-month decision update. So... We're going to be seeing that class two resubmission decision on October 30th of 2021. PDUFA readouts I'm very uh, suspicious of. I'm not really sure what to expect. And for this reason, I'm keeping my position in ClearSide still pretty low. I think depending on the update that we see from the PDUFA, I'm going to decide to add to my position or not. Because we are going to be seeing an update in CLS-AX, their phase one tube OASIS program which saw really good data in the mid part of 2021 and led to a big increase in the stock price. And so they're gonna be reporting data from their cohort two by the year end, and I would expect this data to be very positive. So I'm gonna wait and see how the PDUFA result comes, see how the stock trades and decide whether or not I wanna add after that. But that's Regenix Bio and ClearSide. Overall, very excited for the company and I'm happy to continue to hold the position Yes, I did some trading on that, but I'm happy to continue to hold as we get into the later readouts for the end of the year. All right, I want to shift gears now and talk about X-linked retinitis pigmentosa. And the reason for that is that we saw an update from 4D Molecular Therapeutics, and they presented interim results from their 4D125 Phase 1-2 clinical trial, and this is in patients with advanced X-linked retinitis pigmentosa, and this is at the ASRS annual meeting. And just a reminder for what this product is, is it's a new type of capsid that's been developed using 40 molecular therapeutics proprietary methods. That's, that's, I'll leave it at that, but they're trying to use a directed evolution means of coming up with a capsid that should have better safety than what already exists. And the gene that they're trying to transduce in the eyes of these patients is RPGR, which is often mutated in XLRP patients. And what they're hoping to do is use an intravitreal injection means to transduce this gene into cells of the retina. And the advantage of an intravitreal injection is that you avoid the issues associated with subretinal injection. And a lot of the treatments that are being given for the study of X-linked retinitis pigmentosa are being given subretinally, which has complications associated with it. And there is already a drug on the market right now that was approved by the FDA. It's been like 
three years or so called Luxterna. And this is a different subset of an inherited retinal disease called LCA. So I think the bar is a little bit different when it comes to safety, even though it was a different FDA administration that approved it. And so before we talk about that, I want to mention that XLRP, it's part of this category of inherited retinal diseases. And they call them just inherited retinal diseases because there's a bunch of different mutations that can cause this type of disease, and they're all relatively related. So specifically for XLRP, it's a progressive vision loss disease that's associated with mutations in genes like rhodopsin, RPGR, or splicing factors that are associated with these genes. And how it manifests is it starts off with night blindness in adolescence and then progresses all through their life where reductions in central vision end up happening in patients aged 50 to 80 years old. Studies that have followed the course of the disease talk about progression estimates of between 4 and 19% per year with linear trend lines over shorter periods of time. So it's very progressive and it's slow going, but you do end up becoming blind eventually. The study that I mentioned here, and you can look at it in more detail here, it goes into a lot of nice uh, detail on how the disease happens and how measurements of the disease should be taken. And so they say here that ellipsoid zone width measured using OCT as well as outer ring area on FAF, these are methods of measurement, are the most useful biomarkers in this disease. And so EZ width or ellipsoid zone width is what FDMT did to evaluate their patients. So seeing this in another review makes me confident that this is a good method of evaluating um, progression of XLRP. When it comes to existing treatment options, there's really nothing out there. There's some studies that say vitamin A supplementation could help, but this is a pretty modest effect. And then there's lots of experimental therapies that have largely failed in the clinic, and I'll talk about a couple of those. Now, one bright spot is that uh, medication, a gene therapy medication, was approved for patients that have specifically the RPE65 mutation. And this mutation is what causes the disease uh, LCA or Leber congenital amaurosis. And this Luxterna drug was approved. The company that made it is Spark, and it's been approved for quite a while. And I wanted to mention the safety here because we need to contextualize the safety that we're seeing in these current studies. And if we can do that on drugs that have currently been approved, it can give us a good benchmark comparison. So in 22% of patients treated with Luxterna, they see conjunctival hyperemia, 20% of patients get cataracts, and intraocular pressure increases are seen in 15% of patients. So Luxterna's safety profile is really not that great, if you ask me. Now, because of the fact that these diseases have minimal treatment options today, I think that there's a bit more wiggle room when it comes to the safety. So I think we need to keep that in mind when we're comparing the safety from these treatments to say wet AMD, which has a bunch of already approved treatments that have pretty good safety as it is. So I think that the FDA is gonna be a little less stringent when it comes to uh, XLRP treatments that have some safety signals. Having said all of that, keep in mind that it was a different FDA organization that approved Luxterna, and given that the FDA today is a little more complicated, a little more convoluted, we can't possibly expect that we're going to get the same treatment with BLAs that are submitted today. So also keep that in mind. 
So I wanted to talk about recent XLRP gene therapy news that we've seen, and a lot has actually come out in the last couple of years. Some notable readouts that came out, Biogen and Nightstar reported in mid-2021 that their treatment in XLRP was a failure in phase three. This is pretty disappointing, but they just said that there was no improvement really from their treatment that was given to these patients. A couple other companies that have some potentially viable treatments, one is AGTC, and they've been reporting continual updates from their treatment in X-linked retinitis pigmentosum. And I would say that it's mixed to positive. And the reason for this is that half the patient population that they've treated are considered responders. So from the outset, half of them aren't really responding. And of those that do respond, we've seen some patients actually go from responders to non-responders between six months and 12 months of treatment. So it seems like we're seeing an issue with durability here, but it's a little convoluted and we don't totally understand what's going on. Now, overall, there's an increase in the mean sensitivity in these patients, as well as BCVA, so that's overall a good thing. But the durability challenges, I think, are going to be problematic as we move forward, and I think it's going to be something that the company is going to have to address. Now, AGTC is given as a subretinal injection, so issues associated with retinal detachment are common. Intraocular pressure increases are also seen, as well as inflammation. Now, the company refers to these uh, safety signals as being not too serious, but every time I go to the corporate presentation, they kind of just whitewash the safety, and I had to look in a lot of detail to find out what was actually going on with the safety. So, remains to be seen how the safety is going to work out with AGTC, but given that it's a subretinal injection, there's going to be some safety signals that come out. Another company that has a treatment in XLRP is MGTX, it's Mira GTX, I believe the company is named, and they released some phase one, two data in 2020. And I would say that this is also mixed slash positive. And the reason for this is that they saw statistical improvements in the low dose and the medium dose cohort, but there was no improvement in the high dose cohort. And so what the company does to explain this away is that they say that in their high dose cohort, it was only three patients two to three of them had pretty bad inflammatory responses. And because of this inflammatory response, the company says that it's that reason why the high dose might not have had an efficacy response like they saw in the low and the medium dose. So it's possible that the low and medium dose might be viable moving forward, given that the high dose has these safety concerns. But if we look at the safety, it's again, a subretinal injection. So we're dealing with things like retinal detachment pan-uveitis, so it remains to be seen how the FDA is going to treat these kinds of things. But I gotta say, given that Luxterna was approved, it's a subretinal injection, I don't know how the FDA is gonna look at this. The FDA that we're looking at today is gonna look at this in more particular. So this is where we are with XLRP today, and then we're finally seeing the 4D molecular therapeutics readout from their treatment uh, 4D125 in patients that have XLRP. Now, one other thing I want to clarify here is that patients in these studies here are generally younger and adolescents. And the reason for this is that the progressive nature of XLRP is such that you have a lot of functioning photoreceptors when you're younger and they eventually degenerate. And so it's much easier to try and preserve function in these photoreceptors 
than it is to regenerate dead photoreceptors later in life. So it behooves these companies to try to get patient populations that are younger because their opportunity to improve outcomes is much greater. Now, unfortunately, 40 Molecular Therapeutics chose an advanced stage disease patient population for reasons that I don't fully understand. It seems like they're, they're starting off at a more difficult place because the opportunity for improvement is going to be so much more difficult. So I want to also mention that from the outset, that what 40MT is looking at right now is a patient population that's in older individuals that have lost already a lot of function. So the preliminary phase 1-2 clinical data, they're looking at males over the age of 17, and they're all hemizygous for the RPGR mutation. Eight patients have been treated so far, six in the dose escalation cohort and two in this dose expansion cohort. And there's two different doses here, a low dose and a high dose, and this was an intravitreal injection. Efficacy evaluation was only possible in two patients, but they were able to look at safety in other patients. So to start off when it comes to the safety, the company mentioned on their call that they did a short course local and systemic steroid regimen for one month. And then they also mentioned that the DSMC, the safety board, recommended that they reduce this prophylactic treatment in the future because the safety looked pretty good. Now the problem with this though is because they received a prophylactic safety regimen, the safety signals that we see here are colored by that. And we don't really know how bad the safety is if patients didn't receive this prophylactic treatment. So for us, whatever safety signals we see here, we have to keep in mind that this was based on patients that received a pretty intense prophylactic safety regimen. Now, having said all of that, I wanna remind everybody again, Luxterna approved has not great safety, and the other companies that have subretinal injection therapies right now, the safety isn't that great. So the safety signals that we see here the company mentions that two out of eight patients had a grade one or greater anterior chamber or vitreous cell, and this has to do with ocular inflammation signals that have come out. The people on the call mention this as mild and transient. They say specifically that no chronic inflammation was seen in this patients. So for me, this is pretty good. We would rather see no patients have any anterior chamber or vitreous cell, but I think that in the context that we're seeing here, the fact that it's not chronic, and the fact that it's quite a bit better than the existing therapies safety that we've seen so far, I think bodes pretty well for the company. Now, it remains to be seen how this is gonna play out once the prophylactic steroid regimen is removed, and it's not gonna be removed, but the DSMC said that they're going to reduce it. So I don't know if we know exactly how much it's going to be reduced, but there is a possibility that this is going to lead to more safety signals in the future. So. Overall, I'm pretty positive on this, but remains to be seen how it's gonna play out in the dose expansion cohort. Now, when it comes to efficacy, we're also left wanting because only two out of the eight patients were considered evaluable. If we look at the different readouts here, I think the readouts come out pretty positive, but two patients out of eight, it's not great. So comparing the OCT difference in this ellipsoid zone area, the untreated eye for the first patient was negative 16, whereas the treated eye, it was only negative 12 compared to baseline. So overall, I think this bodes pretty well. If we look at the patient in cohort two, 
the untreated eye difference between baseline and six months here was negative 28%, but the treated eye was only negative 20%. So the decline is reduced in patients that were treated with 4D125. If we look at microperimetry, they use this to look at mean retinal sensitivity. And as well, if we look at the first patient in cohort one, or it's the third patient in cohort one, the treated eye had a positive sensitivity of 1.65 compared to the untreated eye that had only 0.25. In patient five of cohort two, it was plus 0.9 compared to plus 0.1 in the untreated eye. Now this untreated eye, I don't think they were able to get a readout at six months, so this is the four month readout. We can probably assume that the benefit at six months is probably around here, but the fact that they couldn't even get a good untreated eye measurement at six months for this patient, it just, we don't get, have a lot to go off of here. Now, if we look at the number of loci that had an equal or greater than seven decibel improvement, we get a plus six number of loci in the treated eye compared to plus one in the untreated eye for the first patient. And then in the other patient, we saw plus three compared to zero, but again, this evaluation wasn't really able to take place because of the issues associated with um, collecting that data. So overall, I think the efficacy is, is like good, but we're, we're kind of left wanting because it's only two patients. And also the fact that these patients are so advanced in their disease, I think any improvement here is better than nothing. And that I'm more excited to see how this treatment would bode in a younger patient population given that the window of improvement is much greater. So that's where we're left with 40MT. I think overall, it's pretty positive. A lot of people, I think, on Twitter are saying that the fact that we're past this readout, the stock rallied on the, on the news because it's over, and we can now look forward to the Fabry disease readout that is also coming in Q4. I don't know if I totally buy that. I think that overall, this data is decent, and we're just left wanting more, pretty much. But in the call, the... Members, the leadership members mentioned that the dose expansion cohort is continuing to move forward, which I think is also positive. And they're saying that they're moving into a younger patient population. And like I said, they're more likely to get a benefit from a treatment like this. So I think it's good that they're doing that. Uh, I mentioned here, it's difficult to assess the safety given the extensive prophylactic steroid regimen. And the fact that they're going to be changing to a less intensive one, I think it'll be interesting to see how that shakes out. Overall, the efficacy is positive, but with one to two patients available, we don't really have much to go off of here. So we'll see. The company still has a couple of readouts coming in Q4. We have 4D110 data in choroideremia, which is coming in Q4, and then also 4D310 data in Fabry disease coming in Q4. I think the bar is probably pretty low for choroideremia data, but the bar is pretty high for Fabry disease, so I'm excited to see both of them, and for that reason, I'm still holding on to my position. So overall, that's my take on the ophthalmology readouts that we saw from these companies. It's a pretty exciting space right now, so I'm, I'm happy to be an investor in these companies. And yeah, for the reasons I outlined earlier in the show, um, it's the reason why I'm still holding on to a decent portion of my portfolio here. So to wrap up with a quick portfolio overview, I made a lot of moves in the last little while. So like I mentioned before, I sold about three quarters of my Regenix bio and then bought a bunch back at a lower cost basis. So happy to be holding around 60 shares right now. I sold a decent portion of my clear side, but I'm still holding 50 shares. Oh, I think this is a mistake. 
Yeah, and so since then I've also sold Orenia and I got a lot of flack for that on Twitter, but I gotta be honest, I'm happy with the profits that I've seen so far in this trade. I think there is some risk going into the earnings report. Everybody's really excited about the increase in prescriptions, but I'm still a little concerned that I'm gonna lose all my profits that I got from uh, this trade. So happy to sell it, take the profits, and move on to something else. And what I did with these profits is I added to YMTX, and we're still expecting a Parkinson's disease readout coming up soon. I added to my Acadia position, which I think the stock has been hammered pretty badly, and that the earnings reports are gonna to start to see pretty good adoption of their drug. So I think that there's some upside here, but I'm probably gonna to look to get out once the stock gets back into the 20s. I added to my Curious position. Curious has been hit unnecessarily, and I think we're still expecting a pretty good data update that we're gonna see in Q4 of this year. So I doubled my position there, and then I also doubled my position in PDSB. The stock rallied crazily fast in the last little while, and there's a modest pullback. So for that reason, I think it's a good opportunity to add to my position. A couple things that I'm looking forward to, I mean, I've mentioned a lot of readouts in general that I'm looking forward to, but tomorrow, or Sunday, October 17th, we're gonna be seeing an update from Biogen and Ionis in their ALS readout. This is phase three, and if the data is positive, it's gonna be a huge boom for the company, so I'm really excited about that. Um, we're also expecting readouts from ALX Oncology, and by the way, this stock, just ridiculous price action after they made this Kind of silly acquisition. I need to read more up on what's going on there, but company dropped significantly on this acquisition of a small biotech. It seems like it's based on the patents, but I'm not exactly sure. So that was pretty uh, disappointing. And then, yeah, otherwise, I'm looking forward to readouts for Madrigal, Checkpoint, uh, KPTI, Shattuck, Oncturnal, we're going to get a readout, BTAI. Oh, also ridiculous price action. The stock dropped by like $3 based on the chief commercial officer leaving, which you really don't like to see just before the potential launch of their drugs. So that I think is an overreaction, but I'm, I'm waiting for the tumor data that we're expecting in Q4. And then we should be seeing an update in SIO gene therapies, Cyclerion. So I'm holding a lot of positions that should have some Q4 readouts, and I'm going to act on those after we see that data. Overall, I'm at negative 3% on the year, which is better than the XBI and ARCG, but I'm still trailing a lot of the big uh, indices. So it is what it is, but hopefully with Q4, we should see a big uh, turnaround story for the XBI and my portfolio. So with that, I'm going to wrap it up, but I want to thank everybody for your support. Appreciate all of the feedback that I've been getting. Hit the like or subscribe button and put in the comments anything you think. Do you think I'm off on the safety for the... Regenix Bio, clear side data, or the 40MT, let me know what you think, and I'm excited to uh, engage with you. But with that, I appreciate all of the support, and we'll see you next time.